Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted in God's holy people. For certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ our only sovereign Lord. Sovereign and Lord. Though you already know all this, I want to remind you that the Lord at one time delivered his people out of Egypt, but later destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not keep their position of authority but abandoned their proper dwelling, these he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. In the very same way, on the strength of their dreams, these ungodly people pollute their own bodies, reject authority and heap abuse on celestial beings. But even the archangel Michael, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, did not himself dare to condemn him for slander, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Yet these people slander whatever they do not understand and the very things they do understand by instinct as irrational animals do will destroy them. Woe to them, they have taken the way of Cain. They have rushed for profit into Balaam's error. They have been destroyed in Korah's rebellion. These people are blemishes at your love feasts, eating with you without the slightest qualm. Shepherds who feed only themselves they are clouds without rain, blown along by the wind. Autumn trees without fruit and uprooted, twice dead. They are wild waves of the sea, foaming up their shame. Wandering stars for whom blackest darkness has been reserved forever. Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about them. See, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones to judge everyone and to convict all, all of them of all the ungodly acts that they have committed in their ungodliness and of all the defiant words ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These people are grumblers and fault finders. They follow their own evil desires. They boast about themselves and flatter others for their own advantage. But dear friends, remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ foretold. They said to you, in the last times, there will be scoffers who will follow their own ungodly desires. These are the people who divide you, who follow mere natural instincts and do not have the spirit. But you, dear friends, by building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. Be merciful to those who doubt. Save others by snatching them from the fire. To others, show mercy mixed with fear, hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To the only God, our Saviour, be glory, majesty, power and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages, now and forevermore. Can we all say amen? amen? Thank you. That's the end of the sermon. No. Hey, can we pray together as we ask God to 
open our hearts, our minds, everything to what he wants to say to us this morning. And Heavenly Father, it's a, a precious time that we have. Thank you for our precious brothers and sisters. Thanks that we can be together here now, openly, unreservedly here for you, not having to fear authorities or anyone coming in and marching us out, putting us in prison like so many of our precious brothers and sisters overseas, other countries are experiencing right now. So we thank you, Lord, that we can be here. So help us to make the most of this time to seize the day for you. Be amongst us. Thank you that you are and that our hearts and minds be yours completely in Jesus' name. Amen. Here's a little question for you. Have you ever, and I'm sure most of you say, yep. Have you ever driven through one of those little tiny country towns that if you miss it, you blink. Sorry, if you blink, you miss it. Let me get it right. If you blink, you've gone through it and even know. But who's done that? No, nah, come on, there's a lot more than you that. However, but before, so you see this little country town and, and you kind of hit the brakes, you know, and before you've gone through it, you decide, no, I want to go back there. I want to I have a look around in this place. And so you do. You do stop and you get out and you look around and then as you carry you know, a bag or two or three full of collectibles and other little items and food and coffee back to your car. You're glad that you did take some time to have a look around in that little town. You know, in an obscure corner of the Old Testament is this brief little letter called Jude. It's kind of like that little country town on the highway that if you blink, you'll miss it. In fact, I think some of you may have done that. If I asked you to look quickly for the book of Jude, you would very easily skip over it. You'd go through the epistles of John, and before you knew it, bang, there you are on the book of Revelation, and you didn't even know that you'd passed over that little tiny epistle called Jude. And, uh, and uh, Jude has actually been called just on that very point. He's, some Bible scholars have actually called Jude the most neglected book in the New Testament. How about that? The most neglected book in the New Testament. And if that's true, then it's a pity because we'll miss out on some of those marvellous and vital teachings if we do skip over or neglect this portion of God's inspired word. We need to take it on board. And I must admit to you, I can't remember ever hearing a message preached from Jude. I don't think I can. Maybe I have, but it doesn't come to me. That's Jude. So Jude, the author is Jude, short for Judas. Judas, no, not the Judas that's come to your mind straight away. As in Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed Jesus, he's not the one. And although there was more than one Judas mentioned in the New Testament, one scholar actually, one Bible commentary said there was about eight. I haven't counted them, but there you go. At least there is, there's more than one Judas mentioned in the New Testament. And although there are more than one, there's only one, there's only one Jude or one Judas who had a brother called James. James. Yep, he was the leader of the Jerusalem church. And then this would also therefore put Jude and James, humanly speaking, as half-brothers of Christ. But as one commentator also said, we can learn a good deal about a person by listening to what they have to say about themselves. Isn't that true? And in Jude's case, 
we can see a man of genuine humility who firstly introduces himself not as having any familial association or claim to Christ, but look how he introduces himself. Jude 1, verse 1. Jude, 1. Jude a servant of Jesus Christ. That's how he introduced himself. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ. In, in, in other words, what Jude is really saying is, Jude first and foremost sees himself as a servant. That same word is bond slave, a bond slave to Christ, completely and unreservedly sold out as a servant and a slave to Christ the Messiah. That's how he first and foremost sees himself. And even the apostles in their letters, Paul, for example, and Peter, refer to themselves in the same way, servants of Christ. James does the same thing in his epistle. You know, and I wonder how you and I might see ourselves in the light of this servant, bond slave of Christ concept or idea that we find here in Jude. How, how do we see ourselves in the light of this? How, how unreservedly available are we for the Lord at any time, anywhere, for any reason? Lord, we're your slave. We are here. We're available for you anywhere, anytime, any place, for any reason. Lord, you are, I'm a servant to you. You are the Lord of every dimension of our lives. Can you say that this morning? I'm a slave of Christ. And isn't it amazing that one of the paradoxes or one of the ironies of our Christian faith, of our relationship with Christ, is that to be his slave is to experience his perfect freedom. Isn't that amazing? If you're a slave of Christ, then you are as free as you could ever possibly be. Put it the other way. If you're not a slave of Christ this morning, then you're in bondage. Look what Jesus said in John 8, 36. If the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. How many of you experience that freedom? A slave and yet as free as you could ever possibly be. So we need to move on from Jude's introduction, or as it also is known as the salutation. How can I move on? Because look, they, they contain this in this, act, this first introduction of Jude he, that there's some magnificent words that are contained in this introduction I mean if you love the Lord Jesus Christ this morning and you belong to him then look at the verbs that are used in verse 1 if you love the Lord if you're a Christian this morning then you are called you are loved you are kept by him by Jesus for Jesus called loved kept I mean there's a three-point sermon all on its own but for now Moving on, Jude begins to reveal what is truly weighing heavy on his heart, that he should write this letter to his brothers and sisters in Christ. And we see that as we read this again, verses 3 and 4. Listen to this and take note of this. Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share he had an agenda. He wanted to write about something edifying and wonderful and, you know, and praiseworthy and so on and so forth. Look what he says. But I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. For certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. 
They're ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ our only sovereign Lord. You see, Jude's urgency is to warn his readers of certain corrupt individuals who have infiltrated the church with their false teachings. And Jude says this is now happening in the church in his day. And of course, we know that it's happening in our churches these days, very, this very day. In 2 Peter 2, which parallels a lot of what Jude's saying here, 2 Peter 2, 1 says this, but there were also false prophets among the people, just as they will, sorry, just as there will be false teachers among you. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who brought them, who bought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. So Jude is concerned with a heresy that was later known as Gnosticism. And that was spreading among these believers. Gnosticism comes from the Greek gnosis. Most of you would know this, but let me remind us. It comes from the Greek gnosis, which means knowledge. And so these certain corrupt individuals who were themselves deceived and deceiving others believed that they possessed a secret knowledge. Indeed, it was a superior knowledge to everybody else about God that came from a direct experience that they had for, with God. So that was the kind of heresy that was being spread. These individuals just thought they were a cut above or two above everybody else. They had a secret knowledge. You didn't. We do. We've got that revelation. You need to hear about this. And we're hearing this stuff being preached and spruiked around God's people today. This so-called knowledge expressed itself firstly in what Jude says in verse 4, when he says, they are ungodly people, and listen, who pervert the grace of our God into a license for immorality. So it seems that these false prophets were able to pervert the understanding and meaning of grace and even forgiveness of sins to allow them freedom to indulge in all forms of sexual immorality. They turned, they turned grace from God into license to sin. And Paul spoke about this very issue when he wrote to the Roman believers saying this in Romans 6, for example, verses 1 and 2 and 6 to 7. He says this, What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? And then verses 6-7 says, For we know that our old self was crucified with him, so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Simply put then, when you and I gave our lives to Christ, we died. We died to the old life 
including the sin which once ruled over us. And we were quite happy that it did. And now we're free. We have been set free from sin's bondage through the blood of Jesus Christ, through the fact that we have died to that old way of life and we are now living in the new way of life in Christ as that new creation. So as Paul says, how can we, if we've died to that, then how can we live in it any longer? And I'd like to suggest to you, as I experienced myself, an incredible experience, though I still struggled with sin, the desire for me when I was filled with the Holy Spirit was now to love God and to do what God wants. And I didn't want to do that sin stuff anymore. Though I struggled with it, and though we do, can you see the difference? And yet before I met Christ, I couldn't give a less about it. I just did what I wanted to do. When? Had no conscience, really. But when you're filled with the Spirit, then he gives you that desire to want to do what God wants you to do. Not to say, oh, now that means, yep, I can keep on sinning because all I've got to do is say, God, forgive me, and he does. If you've got a mind like that, then you're not born again. Because you're not filled with his spirit. Do you see that? And then Jude goes on to say, not only do they pervert the grace of, of God into a license for immorality, but they also deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord. And exactly how these false prophets were denying Christ, Jude doesn't actually say. But clearly... By their immoral lifestyles, which contradicted the word of God and the commands of Christ, they were indeed clearly denying Christ. Again, listen to how Paul describes such people when he wrote to Titus. He says this, Titus 1.6, They claim to know God, but by their actions they deny him. They are detestable, disobedient and unfit for doing anything good. Wow, cop that. But there it is. God's word. Then from verses 5 to 16, Jude launches into a number of Old Testament examples of God's judgment against the disobedient and evil-minded, including these false teachers. And there's a whole heap of them. And you can explore them all if you like. I've only got time to look at three, perhaps maybe just the first three in detail. So let's do that. Just the first three of these. You can look at the others in your own time. It would be a great Bible study. <clears throat> so firstly, verse 5, Jude refers to Israel. This is an example. The people of Israel. And again, I'll do this fairly briefly. Though God delivered them from their bondage in Egypt including through all the plagues, and brought them to the border of the promised land. Yet they did not trust God. They refused to believe in God. In fact, they rebelled against God. This is what Jude is talking about here. And a whole generation fell under God's judgment and they died in the wilderness. Warren Wiersbe, one of the commentators, I quite like what he says. He simply says this, Many Jews were in the nation of Israel and yet were destroyed because of their sin and their unbelief. You know, 
this is the scary part. This, I'm sure this is what Jude was trying to say in a similar way. In the church of Jesus Christ today, Jesus knows those who are his. And he knows those who are not. You see, we can fool one another, but you can't fool the Lord of the church who knows you better than you know you. So he knows those who belong to him, though they be in the church. He knows those who are actually his and those who are not. And you know, being involved in church activities, attending Sunday services, even becoming a church member does not guarantee, nor is it a true sign of one's salvation. You know, only your faith in Christ, who died for your sins, makes you a true believer in Jesus Christ. You know, in Matthew 13 and verses 24 to 30, Jesus tells the parable of the weeds, the weeds representing unbelievers, and how they were sown among the wheat, the wheat representing believers, true believers. And the time will come when God will judge those who reject his Christ, the one and only saviour of the world. And in the parable that Jesus speaks about, the owner of the, of the field says this in verses uh, 30 of Matthew 13. He says, let both grow together until the harvest. At that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds because they're very obvious now. They weren't when they were babies together, when they were young. But now they're obvious. Now their fruit is really being seen for what it is. Let me keep going here. But first collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned. Then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. And then later on, Jesus explained that parable to his disciples. Look at verse 40 to 43. Jesus says, As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They'll be and they, they will throw them into the blazing furnace, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Whoever has ears, let them hear. My dear people this morning, my dear precious friend here this morning, if you are here this morning and you haven't yet met Jesus Christ and you haven't yet made peace with God <clears throat> and you don't yet have that absolute certainty of your salvation that when you die, you will be with him. And that is an absolute clear um, conviction that you have, a certainty that you have. If you don't have that, and you know you haven't met Christ, and you know you haven't surrendered your life to him, and you know something in here that doesn't give you an absolute peace with God, then we're praying for you this morning. And we pray that you'll have ears to hear what God is saying to you personally today, and that you'll open your life to him. If you've never done that before, then maybe this morning's the morning you need to do that. Secondly, let me keep moving on. Secondly, verse 6 of Jude reminds his readers how God did not even spare the angels of heaven. Wow. The angels of heaven who did not keep their positions of authority but abandoned their proper dwelling 
These he has kept in darkness, bowed with everlasting chains for judgment on that great day. And the meaning of what Jude is saying here about the rebellion of these particular angels, it's pretty controversial. And I'm not going to go into all the arguments, simply won't have time for that. You can do it yourself later on. But it is controversial enough to say that. You see, some were saying that, <clears throat> that, that, uh, that Jude was actually referring to the Genesis 6 incident, where these fallen angels called the sons of God assumed human bodies and they began to have sexual relations with women. And out of that produced a race of giants on the earth. And thereby these angels, as Jude is saying now, did not keep their positions of authority, but they abandoned their proper dwellings for other perverted things that they did. And it is an ongoing debate amongst Bible scholars. Was it Cain? Was it Seth? Was it the seed of Cain and Seth mixing together? There's that kind of argument that still abounds today. I lean towards this thing about these angels. Yeah interacting with human with women that's i lean that way um yeah and, and as i said it's an ongoing debate but whatever the sin was god has judged and he will judge these angels on that great day when christ returns and he reigns forever i do like what bible commentator daryl charles says he says this about that particular incident. He says this, the focal point in Jude is not so much the identifying of the exact sin of the angels, rather the fact that the angels left their domain and hence are being reserved for judgment. And interestingly, have you seen this, that it would seem then that there are some fallen angels who are kept in bondage while others are not and are quite active as demons among humanity today. And that is until they are all finally judged, the whole lot finally judged, condemned and thrown into the lake of burning sulfur, which you can read about in Revelation chapter 20, verse 10. But the application that you and I can draw from what Jude is saying here is that God will not be rebelled against. He will not be rebelled against. And if he didn't even spare his angels, his angels who were the highest order of creation, and they rebelled, then what chance do we as humans have if we choose to remain in that unrepented, rebellious state? So it's a pretty full-on word, isn't it? Something to soberly think about. God didn't spare his angels. He's not going to spare you and me if we remain stubbornly in that place and are unrepentant in our rebellion against God by saying, no, God, thanks very much. I'm doing okay. You stay there. I'll stay here. That won't work. Sorry. Won't work. Thirdly, in, in verse 7, Jude's warning comes from the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And he says this in verse 7, in a similar way. It's interesting, isn't it? Look how he starts it off. In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah <coughs> excuse me, and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. <clears throat> they serve as examples of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. 
<coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> Did you note that? Look at the phrase, in a similar way. In a similar way, suggests that the sins of these cities, namely this sexual immorality and perversion, draw a very close parallel to the sins of these fallen angels in, chapter, in verse 6. So Jude basically goes on to say, in fact quite clearly, that the judgment of these cities is a frightening image of what hell is all about. That's probably all I need to say about that. Sodom and Gomorrah rebelled against God, perverted themselves against God's order. Yep, no, God doesn't stand for that. There'll come a day when he will act like he did in these examples that we're given here in Jude. And he will, he is yet to act like he will on this earth in our day and age. And then from verses 8 to 16, you know, Jude continues to give this description you know, and the doom of these false teachers whose judgment and destruction has been foretold even from the Old Testament prophets. 14, verse, verses 14 and 15, look at this. Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about them. He said, see, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones to judge everyone and to convict all of them of all the ungodly acts that they've committed in their ungodliness and of all the deviant words ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Are you kind of sensing this is a hard word, isn't it? This is a hard word from Jude. I don't think Jude intended to start his letter by saying these things, but God's spirit had a different track for him. It is a hard word from Jude, but listen, it's so essential that you and I today do have ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to us today. Don't block your ears to what God is saying to you. Don't harden your heart against what he's saying to you today. You remember how Jude himself began his letter and the struggle that he had because he wanted to write a letter of affirmation, a letter of joy and happiness of our salvation as believers and celebrate all these wonderful things that we have in common. But instead he felt compelled by the Spirit of God to urge his readers to be alert, to stand firm and fight for the faith in, the, in opposition to these false prophets who were now among God's people. And he's basically also saying, and not to be surprised at the coming of these godless individuals. For again, it was foretold that this, th these kinds of things were happening, would happen. As Jude then says in verses 17 to 19, he says, but dear friends, remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ foretold. That they said to you, in the last times there will be scoffers who will follow their own ungodly desires. These are people who divide you, who follow mere natural instincts and do not have the spirit. They do not have the spirit. Can I say this? It might even sound arrogant, but I'm going to say it. If you, there is no other religion in the world who has the Spirit of the Holy, has the Holy Spirit, and, and, unless you're a Christian. Christian faith. Only Christians have the Holy Spirit. 
Only Christians have Christ who gives you the Holy Spirit. Can you see that? So all other religions and faiths, and it does sound arrogant, and you might even, I might even get you know, prosecuted for saying it. But this is what Jude is saying. They, they follow natural instincts. They have a religion, but they don't have the Spirit of God. Only those who believe on Christ have the Holy Spirit, whom he gives to those who believe in him. Keep going on. From verses 20 to 23, in contrast to all that Jude has been describing in his letter about these ungodly and false teachers, he now gives believers a list, and it's a list of seven practices, if you like, seven expectations, practices, enabling and equipping them. And that means us as well, of course, in our faith. And he gives these seven things, and I want to read, I want to read through them fairly briefly. It's about us standing firm in our faith. And there are seven things that we can practice. Here we go. These are the seven. Build yourselves up. These are all found in verses 20 to 23 in Jude. Build yourselves up in your most holy faith, he says. In other words, to continue to grow in your knowledge, in your love, in your understanding of God's word. Continue to grow. God wants us to grow. Peter says, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. So keep growing. Keep loving the Lord. Grow in your love for him. Grow in your understanding of God's word. And be prepared to defend your faith. Know the word of God so that you can defend. Use the sword of the Spirit. Against the, the, the wiles of Satan. Secondly, you've got to keep moving. Secondly, pray in the Holy Spirit. We need to watch and pray. We need to be spending time, quality time, precious time with the Lord. Sweet hour of prayer. You know, we need to be spending that time with the Lord personally in your own personal life. You need to find that place where you can go. Early morning, late at night, whatever works for you. You need to be alone with the Lord. And listen to him. Meet him in the word. And then we also need to do what we're doing this morning. Meet corporately. Worshipping God together. Doing life together. Being real together. Yeah. Being real together. To know the truth and be alert to error in all of its forms. And the more you know the truth, the more you'll be alert to the errors. Thirdly, keep yourself in the love of God. Keep yourself in the love of God. And we do this by living under complete submission and obedience to Christ. We don't always get it right, but that should be the desire of our hearts. To keep being submissive to Christ, being obedient to his commands. Just like Jesus said in John chapter 15 and verse 10 when he said this. John 15, 10. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love. Just as I've kept my father's commands and remained in his love. That's what it means. Keep yourself in the love of God. Fourthly, wait eagerly for that day. That, wait eagerly, for, the, eagerly for, the, for eternal life. Eternal life. This, this glorious hope that every child of God has to look forward to. Your name, if you belong to Christ this morning, your name is written in heaven. You're looking forward to a never-ending life with God forever. And that's a gift and I'll say this, that's a gift that no one, nothing can snatch out of your hand, out of his hand, when you belong to him. Yep, sorry, I'll nail my colours to the mast. I don't believe in losing your salvation. I'll say it up front. I don't believe. You belong to him, you're kept by him. 
There is nothing that can separate us from the love of Christ. As Paul says in Romans, you belong to him, you're his forever. Keep yourself there. Learn and look forward beyond all that's happening in your life. Lift up your eyes and recognize Jesus. Thank you for this gift of eternal life that you've given me. What a hope and what a strength it is to keep me persevering. Let me keep going. Number five, uh, have mercy on doubters. We're going to meet a lot of doubters in this world, in your life. But listen, when you think about the, the world and the, the so many mixed messages that people are getting this day, the so many just plain wrong messages that people are getting, the, the rubbish that people are getting, and they're confused by it. We need to be showing love and patience and mercy to those who are struggling in their faith. They're basically saying, look, would you help me? I'm struggling with this stuff. Then get alongside them. We need to be showing that kind of mercy and love to those who are struggling. They need our encouragement, not our criticism. We need to be a role model. Ask God, Lord, help me to be a role model for you, for that person, to witness for them. We need to be praying for these people who have these doubts, who struggle with their faith. Number six, Jude says, snatch others from the fire. Snatch others. From the... It seems to me that <clears throat> sometimes people need, there are certain people who need a powerful jolt regarding the real and frightening existence of hell. There's a bit of, you know, kind of, you, you hear some, some stories now. You're hearing a kind of a thinking that God could never, if God's a loving God, then he could never turn people into hell. But he's a righteous God. He doesn't turn people into hell. You go there yourself because you've chosen to not walk with Christ. You've chosen to walk your own way. And if you walk your own way, well, that's leading to hell. That's just simply the culmination of where you're going in your own life unless you meet Jesus. And he said, and I think that what Jude is saying here is that there are people who need that powerful jolt. Wake up, realize hell is real. And human beings who reject Christ will go there, along with Satan and his hordes, to whom it was actually prepared for. I don't believe hell was made for human beings, made for Satan and the hordes that are following him and his demons. Not for you and me, but you're going there unless you meet Jesus. Unless he's the one that you say, Lord, you're the saviour. Oh, that's what you're saving me from, from this place called hell. We need to sometimes give people a jolt, snatch them out of that place from going there. Seven, last one. Watch out from, watch out from being polluted by those who you, that you seek to be helping. Watch out from being polluted by those that you are seeking to help. And I believe what, what the, the Jude's saying here is that you need to know your boundaries yourself. Know your own boundaries. Know what you are vulnerable to. You need to be careful. You need to be prepared as to how far you're going to walk with somebody in their lifestyle that you yourself don't slip up and get caught in that particular lifestyle. So it, ne it means you need to know what your boundaries are. And it might mean, if necessary, it might mean letting that person go and saying, Lord, I can't walk any further with them. I can't get, I can't get any closer. I can only do this. I can pray for them, but I can't walk where they're going. I don't trust myself. I'm handing them over to you. I think that's what we're really seeing here. Watch out from being polluted by those that you're trying to help. Finally, 
the most well-known and I think the most loved part of Jude's epistle are these verses in 24-25. And that forms the, 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 the doxology, in other words, the praise to God, or the benediction, it says doxology here, it's a benediction, I think it's a prayer of, of blessing in Jude's epistle. And these magnificent words encapsulate for the believer our final and secure hope that which we would stand firm with, this secure hope, in the midst of the trials and the temptations and, 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 and all the other stuff that we go through in this life, we have this secure hope. We have this stand firm from Jude here in Jesus Christ himself. And I want us to stand as we finish this uh, uh, time together. Let's stand and together I want us to read this benediction as our final uh, time together. Let's read it together. Who would like to sing it? Come up the front if you want to sing it. No, we won't, we won't do that. We'll just simply say it. Let's, can we say it together? Here it is. This is about the Lord Jesus Christ. This is our final and secure hope in him. In the midst of trial and temptation, we can say this to him. Let's read it together. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling and present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To the only God, our Saviour, be glory, majesty, power and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen. I think we might finish it there. Amen. Amen. Please go in peace. Thank you.